And we are back. Thank you guys so much for joining us. And once again, trying time to kick off my favorite part of the show. And we got a special guest with us. Uh, none other than the Viceroy of Value himself. And he probably loves that I continue to call him that every time he comes on. But it's been a while. And a little bit has changed since the last time we talked, especially on the valuation front. So without further ado, I want to welcome our old friend of the show, Tobias Carlisle of Acquirers Funds. Tobias, how the heck are you, man? Hey, Zach. Thanks for that kind introduction. I'm really well and uh, better given the backdrop, honestly. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit more our uh, – this is, this is a course a little more suited for our kind of horse, right? Yeah, I think since – uh, February 12 last year, we've really seen a breakdown in that growth at any price uh, ramming that was going on. So the, the ramming has turned into just panic in those names. And so they're all down 75, 80%, which we've been discussing the potential for that happening for quite a while now, years now. And so it's interesting to see that finally coming about. And on the, on the other side, it's been a better year for value. Values had a little ride. Uh, we had a good year last year. We can talk about that as we as we go along here. It's good to be back. Yeah, it is, man. And and it, and again, watching. Um, well, I mean, we were up. Let's see. Well, um, the panic. Well, the lockdown panic at the end of the year. You know, oil got smoked by twenty six percent in two weeks. Um, we were actually up forty percent going into November. And then we finished the year up uh, just shy of 28, I want to say. But you, my friend, were up about 32, weren't you? 38 for the year. 38? Yeah, Zig was 38 for the year, and Deep was 34 for the year. And, and uh, yeah, a, a smashing comeback. Um, and this is exactly – I remember when you and I uh, – I remember when you launched Zig – and we were one right. of the first. We were one of the first investors, and at that point, we replaced. You were the first in the gate. You were the first in the gate. I don't, don't say one of the first. You guys were first in the gate. You and I discussed it beforehand. Uh, you were um, the earliest supporter. I'm, I'm so grateful. I can't tell you. Oh well, no. But I'm, what, what I'm saying is, is, is we we were a little early to it, but. Um, <laughs> But, but, but the whole idea, you know, you know, the way we run our portfolio, we have a core holding, you know, and at that point we switched our indexes from mostly the S and P 500 and, and triple Q and our core holding became zig. And the whole idea was we thought it was time for value to run and high flyers to get smoked. And if that occurs, there really isn't a better place to be than zig, is there? Well, I think, I think that's right. I think that the, the what what has what what has been the problem with value is always that it's not a great timing mechanism you and i can agree that something is undervalued and it can be years later and it's still undervalued and you haven't necessarily made a mistake and people will say well if you're early you're wrong i fundamentally disagree with that as a value investor because i we're both students of the market where we know that the market can be irrational. If we agree that the market can be irrational, why would we assume that as soon as we buy something, the market becomes rational for the thing? It just wouldn't, right? David Einhorn has a great line where he says, you know, something that is two times overvalued is silly, but three times overvalued is no more silly in the sense that, you know, once you've departed from fundamentals, then you know, becoming more expensive or cheaper, you know, that, that further departure isn't 
you know, further irrationality. It's just all part of the same thing. And we saw that I don't think we've ever seen anything like it in the growth stuff. I've, and, and I'm including the dot-com run-up, and I think that statistically this is true, but also just that movable feast in silly speculation that seemed to roll through everything. So it's went through the, it went through all of the tech stocks and then, you know, it went through the bankrupt stocks. Remember anything with a Q on the end had this run-up? Yeah. And then yeah. AMC and GameStop. And then into the into the NFT, like the bit into all the crypto and into the NFTs and all it's just been this sort of ongoing speculation, but I think that it's sort of draining out of the market now. And it's possible that energy has a big is a big part of that. It just sort of it, it acts like you know, the Fed clearly can't raise rates at any point here, right? They've just they're so far behind the curve where they should have been raising rates for the last few years and they Not weren't. Yet. Now they have to keep on lowering, but it doesn't matter. Energy's gonna do it for them, I think. So and I don't want to get stuck on this just because we we talk about macro a lot, but you don't think they're gonna raise? I think they may very well do some sort of token raise just so they can say that they did raise. But I, I think that they're kind of, they're facing, like, look at what they're looking at now. They've got this conflict in the Ukraine. Um, there's this ongoing sort of Cold War with China, and I think this is all part of the same thing. There's massively overvalued stock market in the States, but underneath it all, there's this um, hollowing out of, of employment. Like, well, the employment figures... They're totally gamed because they give you the they give you the marginal number, not people who are no longer looking for right. looking for work. Right, so it's it's not a particularly good figure. It's a meaningless figure, really. So they must be looking at that data. They they must they see that like we do, and they have to make some sort of decision. Now, are you going to are you going to try and mop up the inflation, which is exploding? What are we? What was the last print? Like seven point nine percent? Yeah, the highest we've seen in forty years or something like that. You would think like a sensible Fed would be trying to get that under control, but they can't because they have um, they have all of these other things that they have to so many play like the the cure for all of that really is a recession and a crash in the stock market, but it's just politically unpalatable, particularly with a, an election coming up. So there's just no way that they can happen. I think they're trapped. So you may, might get a token twenty five basis point, something like that, but meaningless ultimately. Yeah, I it's 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 I think it's fascinating to watch this whole thing <laughs> unfold. You the, the inflation, right? Um you, you were you aware that this inflation just showed up in the last 6 months. It it was caused and then it really got acute in the last 2 months because of Putin. This is Putin's inflation, right? <laughs> who who could have seen it coming? Um well, and you and I were talking about this for years and 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 it's just it I always talk about how it's it even when you're expecting something, even when you see something or you or you properly forecast something, at least for me, there's still somewhat of an astonishment when you finally see it take place. And 100 percent, you know, and, and I am certainly not the first guy to talk about it. Um, but, you know, for years, people in our circles and, you know, we've had the conversation that it's really easy to see how this is going to end. The Fed's going to paint themselves into a corner and they're going to get into an environment where they need to raise and can't. And here we are, right? Um, It it really is fascinating. But something you said, we have an analogy for that. And I had never heard that Einhorn quote. But one of the ways that we've explained it to clients is if we're going to the moon and we're off one degree or we're off 20, the result is the same. 
it's a wide miss, right? <laughs> right. Um, and that, and, and, and people don't get that. I, I was, uh, did you, and I, you look not trying, well, I, I, well, not trying to kick somebody when they're down, but did you see the, um, did you see the video that came out from Ross Gerber last night on Twitter? Did you see that? Was it, I've seen one from him recently where he was, he's talking about buying Tesla. That, that, oh. It's like about four minutes long, buy Tesla at the end. Yeah, it looks like he's like three quarters of a way into a fifth of Jack Daniels. Um, and I, I retweeted it last night and I was like, tell me your portfolio is getting smoked without telling me your portfolio is getting smoked. I did see smoked. that, yeah. And, and, and what was amazing to me is I, I didn't really disagree, and I don't know it well because I don't really follow Tesla except for entertainment purposes, but... I don't. I I didn't really disagree with any of his any of what he was saying. But I look at it, I'm looking at him going. How is this not priced in at eight hundred and fifty billion dollars? Right. Right. Like just because something drops forty percent in price doesn't mean it's cheap. Right. That's the problem for Tesla. Is it ran up so much? It's 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 you know they always say price for perfection. Like Tesla really is priced for you know, all of these magical things that have to happen in it. And if all of those magical things happen, then it's probably fairly valued. And, and the, like, the likelihood is that the magic doesn't happen. Yeah, well, I don't even know what the likelihood is, right? Like everybody's saying, well, it's going to be the Cybertruck. Ford is swamped. Here, here's the other thing I haven't got. Let's look at who, and I don't want to get off on a Tesla thing, but let's look at who buys trucks in this country do you think they're going to buy a Ford or a Tesla? I mean, come on. It's just, it's madness. You know, it's tough because I, I really like, I agree with a lot of what Musk says. And, I, and it's, it's true that, you know, we probably do have to get off oil at some point. It's just that that takes 25 or 50 years to extract right. the economy from that. And Tesla's still very small as a, as, as a, an owner of the you know, it's like a 1% market share or something like that of total sales. So there's plenty of room for it to grow. And it is growing at a very fast clip. I think they were 50% year on year. But here's the problem. For them to grow, that takes enormous reinvestment. Like they have to build plants and things like that. Plants are expensive to build. Then the margin on cars is not great. And, you know, that, that's the problem with metal bending type businesses like that. You look at the margin on most cars, it's like it's less than a thousand bucks. Well, for you, every car that you sell. Well, and I, I, you may have already been onto this, but I kind of had an aha moment. I was reading some tweets last night, and uh, I kind of had an aha moment because now Tesla is saying that um, if you want a car without uh, what was it? If you want if you're if you want to buy a car without FSD, mm-hmm. uh, you're waiting for I, I can't remember what the backlog is, but they're putting you clear to the back of the queue. And now they're charging $12,000 for FSD. And I went, that's their margin, right? Right. And they've got to pick up the cost of FSD to offset the, I mean, think of what's happened to their cost of goods sold just in the last couple months. Right. I mean, the batteries are expensive. All of those inputs into the batteries are expensive. Copper. I mean, even petrol, you know, they've used more petroleum products in the production of their cars than any other car in the industry, (laughs) which is funny, right? Uh, But nickel, copper, I mean, it literally, like their purchase list is literally the stuff that has gone through the roof. I wouldn't be surprised if their sourcing costs have gone up 25% so far this year. Yeah, I think that's fair. And you're right about the the FSD, that that is their margin. And the the risk is that you finally get the NHTSA or whatever whatever the body that governs 
um, the, is it those NHSTB or NHTB? Have I got it around the wrong way? They they may come in and say, you know, you're marketing this as full self drive. It's clearly not full self drive. You've got to refund these these monies. Then that's a disaster. Yeah, that could be a that could be a. I, I and and quite honestly, I'm shocked it hasn't happened. I don't know how you advertise that and call it full self drive. It just seems like it's a lawsuit waiting to happen. Yeah, but, I, I I don't understand that either. Like that risk is not at all baked into the stock. The stock <laughs> is trading as if the, the stock is trading as if everything is going really well. It's but it's been one of those things that the entire way through this whole cycle, it's sort of defied my understanding of the way that the world works. So I'm the wrong person to comment on it. I should say that from the outset. Yeah, I um and and there's still, you know, there's still quite quite still quite a few bizarre disconnects in this market. But I'll put myself in that same zone and I I'm and I don't know where you're at. This could be like another one of our value investor, you know, therapy sessions. Um I don't know where you're at, but I still don't trust it, right? I still like but going that long I never imagined that we would go that long and watch that stuff get that crazy and watch the stuff that, you know, that we're looking at great companies doing really good, continue to get left in the dust. Did you anticipate it being that long of a run? Absolutely not. But in some senses, that's okay because it gives you an opportunity to buy some of these things that are quite good businesses. It's just that it doesn't get reflected in the, in the stock price. And ultimately that's how you judged even over periods of, of years i feel like we are returning to that though there's definitely so that the 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 statistic that i like to point to pretty regularly this is something cliff asness twitter this cliff asness who's phd from birth or from the old chicago school of business now birth um nobel laureate uh professor of his eugene famer said that he's the smartest student he's ever had and now he runs aqr he's a billionaire he's a super smart guy and he said that there are basically these um, periods in the market where the prices become untethered from fundamentals, and then there are periods in the market where the prices are reversed to fundamentals. So 1999 and 2000, basically what that meant was the worse your business was, the more money you lost, the more your stock went up. That's a disaster for guys like me because I'm looking at fundamentals as the way that I'm making these decisions. The same thing happened in 2019 and 2020 at the time that he tweeted out, that that was just before the bottom in September 2020. Since September 2020, we've had this reversion where fundamentals have started mattering again, and they've mattered in the sense that it's sort of it's 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 theoretical the values and it's theoretical the balance sheet. So I I go through all these processes that they they're, they're ultimately they're meaningless because I can buy and sell something and it doesn't have any impact because I'm I look at the balance sheet health is this a healthy balance sheet and I avoid stuff that doesn't have a healthy balance sheet or isn't converting its cash flow, its revenues into cash flows but there be, there comes a time and I think we're coming into it now where those things go from being theoretical to being real questions companies that have weak balance sheets and need to raise money get into some trouble through periods like this and that's the kind of thing that it makes me it this is the sort of thing where really it's this is the distinguishing time between folks who don't look at that stuff and folks who do so the tougher times are going to be better for for value investors i think we're coming into that period now from your lips to god's ears pal uh one of the one of the things that i was was thinking about hold on one second i just lost my train of thought okay so one of the things and i'd like to hear your thoughts on this 
one of the things that I think you just hit on was the fact that you know these companies that have weak cash flow relative to their you know to their revenue growth. Um, one of the things that I am still baffled by, because I don't assume I, I learned, and again I think you and I have discussed this before, but. I learned the hard way not to assume that the people on the opposite side of the trade for me are, are, are idiots, right? Yeah. Um, but one of the things that shocks me is that more of these companies didn't sell equity when they were at those valuations. Doesn't that just blow your mind? What do you I've make seen, of that? <laughs> I've seen a lot of equity sales. Yeah, so the equity sales, you need – there's a lot going on with equity sales, right? You need to be able to make full disclosure of all – you need to make a disclosure to make the equity sale. Yeah, and often. That's true. Uh, that's the thing that holds them back. They don't want to make the disclosure. That's just, that's, you know, I, in a previous life, I was a corporate attorney doing a lot of this kind of stuff. And that was just equity sales. Are, you, you disclose stuff when the future looks good and you you have a good reason to raise the money and you, you've got a clean bill of health when you make the disclosure. And that's how you get it done. So I, I suspect many times when someone needs the capital and they don't do the sale, it's because they they don't want to disclose something. Yeah. Um, what now? What I was I, I was reading um, I was reading a press a press release or an interview with Kathy Wood, and one of the things that um, that popped up is I, I kind of thought that you guys might be collaborating on a deep value fund at some point in the near future. <laughs> she's she's joined the ranks of value investors, man. Um, the pe- unwillingly, yeah, unwillingly. Um, I, 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 but I did want to bring this up because, you know, the, our listeners hear me harping on this constantly. Um, just give us a, a run through of, of what the problem is with her now believing that, you know, being down, what is she down, 68, 70%, something like that, that now that, you know, this is value because it's lost so much. Walk us through the problem with, with that whole outlook. Well, that's right. Arc, arc, ARKK, her flagship topped out at $156 February 12th last year, last trade that I saw, which was this morning, it was sub, I think it was sub 58. And so that's, that's, that's a very significant drop. The problem is that when I went through, and her biggest holding is Tesla. So Tesla, I think, is, is multiples overvalued. And, and if I was going to buy it, then I'm a little bit more conservative. And so I would pay even less for it than that. But the, the problem for many of these companies is that it, it may very well be that they do turn out to be quite good companies. It's just mm-hmm. that there's a, there's a, if you're, if you're like, if you're a kind of the, the type of investor that I am, I need enough um, history of these things actually making money before I can make an assessment of where they're going to be in the future, because it's not clear that, that they, they may grow very rapidly but it may not ultimately be a very good business. It just might not have a very, might not have enough of a margin. It might require too much capital tied up in the business, you know, for the margin that it does make. All of these things mean that there are, there are just other better, easier opportunities to identify where you know how much capital they've got in the business. They're pretty defensible and you know roughly what you're going to make. So that's, that's what I am looking for. I want things that have got a reasonably high return on incremental invested capital i want them to be available at a price that assumes that not everything goes according to plan in the business the competition's going to come in and erode some of those margins they're not going to grow as fast they're still going to be pretty good businesses even if everything doesn't go right when i look at what they do 
their assumptions seem to me to just be too optimistic. And it's possible that those things do eventuate, but the likelihood that they do, they just seem to defy the base rate on every single thing that they do. And look, to her credit, that's a tough business to be in. She's built a really great business. She's been ahead of the price on all of those stocks up until last year when it sort of all started unraveling. But I take her portfolio, I do this on a regular basis, because I, I don't want to miss one of the good ideas that she has. If, I, if, I, if it is, in fact, deep value, and I can go in and I can identify it as being well undervalued, then I would buy it for, for Zig. So I look at the portfolio. So I still think after everything that's happened, the expected return on her portfolio is around 6%. And you can contrast that with, just, just so you've got some sort of context for that, when I look at the S&P 500... Because the S&P 500 contains Facebook, Amazon, uh, Apple, Netflix, Google, those fang names, many of those names, Google's not expensive. Google's reasonably viable here. Apple's not that expensive. Microsoft's not that expensive. Like many of these things, and they occupy 25% of the index. When you do an analysis on those businesses, because they earn so much on their invested capital, and they're, they're... they're not expensive. I wouldn't say that they're deep value either, but they're not expensive. You could, you could justify buying them where they are. I think that the expected return across that S&P 500 is around 16 or 17%. So she's at a big discount. She, she's, the expected return in hers is like a third of what it is for the S&P 500. And the S&P 500 is available more cheaply than her portfolio is. And so when I do that for Zig, I think the expected return in Zig is a little bit of a premium to the the market so i think that the stocks in there are sort of comparable to a little bit better than the s&p 500 but it's also available at half the price of the market so if i'm wrong on my assessment of these businesses there's still a lot more margin for safety in my portfolio i can be wrong by quite a large margin and it should still over time outperform and that's that's how i think about it i'm trying to build a reasonably good quality safe portfolio at a big enough discount to the market so that whatever happens, we're going to be okay. If everything gets cut in half, then we're, all, we're just going to be so cheap. And we're already in things that buy back stock. So I like companies that recognize that they're cheap and, and use some of their free cash flow, which they have to buy back stock, because that gives you that anti-fragile Nassim Taleb type effect where when they get cheap, they take advantage of their cheapness. If they get cheaper... They just, they just buy back more stock, which concentrates the value in the hands of the people who remain. So I think that what we're seeing now and what we've been seeing since February last year is this sort of compression as these really overvalued names come in and the undervalued names just get a little bit more love. They don't even need it, honestly. They don't need any multiple expansion for them to outperform. All they need is just continue to be rated at the same multiple and the business will sort of take care of the performance over time. Well, yeah, because – and I was trying to explain this to a lot of my clients. I, they were like, well, what do you think is going to happen? And a, a lot of <clears> – <throat> I shouldn't say a lot. Several of the names we have in our portfolio, if, if I was being greedy and wanted to make the maximum return off of those securities, and I was explaining this to some of our clients, I would actually prefer them to go down even more. And, and the reason right. why is because the business is super stable. It's pretty predictable. I mean, there'll be little ups and downs, but they're buying back mountains of stock and they pay dividends. And so I was telling them, I go, guys, 
as they buy back stock, not only does it concentrate your ownership, you know, your, 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 your stake, but their earnings are improving at the same time because of, of, of withheld dividend payments, right? Like right uh, there, right, right there is a perfect illustration, I think, of what you're talking about. So even if the business has no growth, as an investor, you're getting better earnings and a bigger chunk ownership in those earnings, aren't you? 100%. That's, that's a great way of thinking about it. And one, one other thing that you just said there that, that I think is important to highlight too one of the things that I'm doing with my portfolio is I'm not necessarily optimizing for the for the highest rate of growth or the highest rate of return for the portfolio. I could definitely get higher returns in the portfolio if that was my objective. What I am optimizing for all the time is survival under all conditions, every right. condition. Anything that happens, I want to be able to survive. And the reason is that the market can go up and down. We can go into these nuclear winter type recessions and depressions and there are businesses that will not survive through those periods of time even though i think they're good businesses even though i think it's likely that they're going to do very well there is this edge case there's this fringe possibility that we go into something like that and they won't make it and i will just not put capital into those things so it constrains my opportunity set to stuff that will survive under all conditions and uh, then I'm trying to earn a reasonable return on, on those kind of opportunities. So that, that's how I think about portfolio construction. And I see that that's what I think is missing from ARC, honestly. <laughs> yeah, you think. <laughs> I, I, hey, the way I like to I think of it, and, and I'm, you, know, you, you know me, Mr. Risk Management, I'm, I'm very much in the same. Right. So, same know your risk radio, right? There you go, man. But, and I think about it as I want to be the investment world's cockroach, right? <laughs> Yeah, man. Last man standing. Last man standing. Yeah, right. And I've just explained to our clients and thank God that, you know, thank God things worked out for us through the COVID dip. And then, you know, also this year, but showing the clients that, hey, if if we're if we're prepared like that, yeah, there are times where it's going to be a drag on performance. But there's also going to be times. And I think this is the most important thing to me. And I and I'll and I'll bounce it off you and see if you agree. Um, but one of the reasons that we do that is not so much that the accounts don't lose value, but it's to ensure that we have liquidity when everything is being thrown out, right? Because that's when the money is made, man. Super important. And I, and that whole liquidity aspect in so many of those portfolios, it's just a, it's an afterthought, right? There's, we're just going to ride it up and down. Okay. Well, you know, A, I don't think that's the best way to go, but B, you got to have a situation where you know you've got dry powder when, when everything's being given away. Look, I couldn't agree more. Let, just to go back to Tesla, which we were talking about before. So if you think about Tesla, to, to, to Elon Musk's credit, he is a great entrepreneur. He mm-hmm. has managed to sell stock at the right time. They do have a pretty good war chest there. The issue for them is that the valuation where it stands right now assumes that they continue to grow at 50% a year. 50% is an extraordinary rate of growth for any business. A software business would be very happy to be growing at 50% a year. So they have to grow at 50% a year for the next 10 years to justify the current valuation. And they have grown at a very high rate. The problem is that to grow at a 50% rate, you eventually you get to become a very, very big business. And that business requires uh, that they build additional factories to, to justify, to sell that many cars, Right. And so where does that money come from to build those factories? You either sell equity or you raise some debt to do that. And it's those calculations when I look at those businesses, that's the thing that like mathematically they can't 
do what the market is pricing for them to do. And it's a, it's a capital constraint. It's a problem with the amount of capital that they require to get there relative to what they have in the businesses right now. It's, a, it's an incredibly important assessment for determining where something can grow to, but also for how prepared it is to survive these bad times that the, mar- the markets go through. We just haven't seen one for a really long period of time. People have forgotten what they look like, but they're nasty. And when they come around, you'll never forget it again. Well, and they typically last longer than five weeks, right? I mean, we'll, we'll be lucky if they last. If, if it's shorter than two years, we'd be. I think we'll be lucky. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you. One, one last closing point on, on those stocks, and tell me if you agree with the analogy. I'm a big analogy guy, right? Um, colloquialisms and analogies, the more the better, at least as far as I'm concerned. But, but kind of the way that I've looked at that is, is a, lot of those, a lot of those stocks, like you said, they could end up being great businesses. But I can't get over the idea that it would sort of be like an MBA team uh, drafting people, uh, drafting kids off of a, a 10-year-old basketball team, right? Where, right. Yeah, there's a chance they could be right, but there is a lot. You got, you got puberty going through there, right? And that changes a lot of things. Um, and, and, and it just, it's, it's so opaque, you know, you get up to the other thing that's blown me away about this cycle is when you're coming out of 99, remember Sun Microsystems, right? Um, you've, you've, you you've put his stuff up over, he was sitting there giving that story about how nuts it was that they were at 10 times revenue, right? 10 times revenue. That was like a, but that's a, that's a deep value stock. That's deep value. Oh man. To be fair to him, like he was in the, that was uh, Scott McNeely and Sun Microsystems saying that it assumes that 10 times revenue that he's got no, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't pay his employees and, right. and, and all of these other things, which clearly they had to do. That's a lower margin. Some of these software businesses should, the revenue multiple just doesn't tell you enough about how good a business is to justify making that decision. But that's all you have to go on when you're looking at, so you're looking at all of these high school students playing basketball. And one of them's LeBron James, and you you pick him up as a high out of high school, and he goes on to be one of the greatest players ever. You know, my, it's always going to be MJ for me, but I'm that generation. I don't want to be like. It's always the generation before that says that this current guy is not as good as the last guy. But it's like MJ objectively. Let's be, let's I mean, be come honest. On. Yeah, <laughs> come on. Statistically, it's MJ. Oh, yep, yep. But the point is that it's just really hard to. Everybody looks at these these high school students and says, "Oh, that's Amazon." You know, this that LeBron is Amazon, but then they look at these high school students and they think all of them, or a high proportion of them, are Amazons. And it just Amazon and LeBron are both really rare creatures. They just don't come around very often, and you can't be pricing them all as if they're as if they're Amazon or LeBron. You need to see them get a little bit older because it's more than just being a teenage phenom. It's also how hard are you going? You know, are you going to be a Kobe Bryant who just spends more time in the in the gym than anybody else on top of having phenomenal talent? Like that's the thing that elevates. It's true also for these companies over very long periods of time. All of those little incremental decisions that they make about the way that the business is constructed how much capital they put in, when they buy back, how much they pay out, all of those decisions over time reveal who those businesses are. And you need more history to make those decisions because you just don't know. Sometimes phenomenal skill isn't enough because you know they've got some other emotional problems. They're not fully developed. Happens with businesses too. I mean, Peloton's a great example. Peloton looked like a really impressive business out of the gate. I've got to say, I was skeptical when it listed. 
I didn't think it was. And now we're trading below where it listed. And I said, I said it at the time. There's a tweet out there that I thought there would be. You know, you've got to be careful. These things can be faddish, right? This is the issue with it. You spend a lot of money, and then it becomes an expensive clothes horse in your room, and you don't want to pay those fees anymore. Funny story. We are. Funny story about that one. <clears throat> we have a we have a, a small private equity fund. That, I think I've told you this before. Yep. We've got one investment in an audio company in Woodenville. And we were contacted by Peloton. And we worked with their engineers about redesigning. Uh, they wanted to use our speakers um, in their system. Now, we provide speakers to Logitech, Hewlett Packard, Bentley Automobiles, like all that. And it was so funny dealing with them because you – now, this is before this happened. And I, I had linked discussions with our engineers and the people that were dealing with them. First of all, they acted like, you know, there, there was this attitude that it was a privilege for us to even be talking to them. And then you should have seen their internal growth projections. They ended up not going with us because they said, quote, unquote, that we could not pace with their growth. <laughs> and, and we even my engineers were sitting there looking at the numbers. They don't know anything about the stock. And he looks at me and he goes, Zach, I got to be honest with you. I don't see how in the world they're ever going to hit any of their numbers. And it was just so funny to what these guys are not investment guys. They're audio engineers, right? And they were just looking at these guys' projections going, A, we have no problem meeting their demand. I mean, we work with, you know, Hewlett Packard for crying out loud. Um, and we're, you know, we're co-designing stuff with Facebook and Amazon as we speak. Um, and dealing with, you know, watching that from the inside, that's where I went, uh-oh. Okay, you guys sell an exercise bike, man, <laughs> with a, with an iPad strapped to it. One hundred percent. It 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 just that one that one. Well, there's a lot of them out there that blow me away. But but go go. They ahead. just overestimate the growth. They overestimate the growth, and then investors who who invest in these things just believe the growth projection. That's that's all that happens. And people through that whole period, you know, I took a lot of grief because I tend to be quite skeptical of growth projections. I've just been doing it for long enough that I've seen growth fall apart over and over and over again. To the point that the higher your growth projection, really, the more skeptical I am about how you're going to be able to do that. So I think that, uh, you know, it's like Tesla a, yeah, I don't is a mean perfect example. I don't mean to interrupt you, but it's like one of those unbelievable back tests. You know what I mean? Like the, those they're, growth projections. The they're growth all project- amazing. Oh, yeah. All amazing. <laughs> yeah, you've never seen a bad one. There's never been a bad back test. No, no, it wouldn't exist. Um, okay, so did you have anything else to add to that? I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, just that, just that you need, just that, you know, just to statistically, you bring up back tests. Like you need to be careful of of if you plug in growth into a back test, the growth doesn't do very well because when people competitors see high rates of growth, they they think that's that sounds great. We'd like to get some of that too. And competition erodes growth rates. It is growth itself that is the thing that you need to be most skeptical of. And at the other end, you know, this is the sort of stuff that I like to buy. It's where it's, the growth is reversing course. And people panic, they extrapolate it too far out. But I think if they've got a good enough balance sheet and they can survive, low growth is okay, provided that you've got that management team in there that's buying back stock and doing the right thing and and concentrating the value for the folks who remain. I'm very uh, optimistic for the future of undervalued companies. I think it's going to be a great decade or so for value here. Boy, I hope you're right, man. Um, <clears throat> okay, switching... switching um topics just a little bit and going to someone who I know is near and dear to your heart. Um, and he has recently become even more near and dear to my heart. Uh, because I, you know, anytime somebody invests 
in any way, shape, or form similar to me, that means that they're brilliant, right? <laughs> it means that we're both just seeing it eye to eye. So full caveat here, um, everybody knows my, my feeling about energy in general right now. So, uh, But what I was interested to see is uh, your boy, Mr. Buffett, he has, uh, he's made some pretty big bets uh, in the energy market in the last, what, 16 months, hasn't he? Well, he was in Oxy. He was in Oxy Prefs, and I think that those Oxy Prefs have converted into common. Uh, Carl Icahn was similarly in those Oxy Common, and Icahn has sold out. I, I, you know, I think that there's energy is clearly doing very well here, and likely will do well for a little while. Clearly, the signal to buy oil or to buy energy was when it got into negative territory a few years ago, and that that those that state of affairs wasn't going to last and here we are like pl- oil over a hundred dollars again it's so funny this has happened so many times in my career that i've seen it go over a hundred dollars and back down to some unsustainably low number and back over a hundred dollars you could almost take one of the poles and just you know when it's when it's really low buy energy when it's really high sell energy so i'm i'm um I'm agnostic on energy at the moment. I have to say this because energy for me, oil is so hard to predict where it's going to go. I think there's a lot of like everybody's pointing out that this is a great environment for energy. We've underinvested in it for a long period of time. It's hated by the administration. We've got, uh, you know, Russia's an exporter and the world seems to be doing some weird thing where it's cleaving in half where China and Russia and Iran and Saudi Arabia are going in one direction and the West is going in another direction. So clearly we've got an uncertain energy future ahead of us, which is a good thing if you're you're along these energy companies. For me personally, it's just hard to um, value companies that have energy, you know, value those oil companies because I don't have any better insight into where energy is going than than anybody else does so i think if you're going to be in energy like the pipelines are an interesting way of doing it magellan or enterprise mmpd or epd i can't hold those in the fund because they're um they're limited partnership flow through type vehicles but i do think that they're very interesting uh sort of more certain ways of of investing in it if you're interested in it but i know that you have one i want i kind of want to hear the, the pitch for this africa oil well, okay, so, <clears throat> you know, I'm always looking for convexity here, right? Right. And, and first and foremost, as always, this is not a recommendation. Um, the, w- when I was building our, uh, our energy uh, portfolio, if you will, um, w- when I feel like I want to get involved in a sector, I, I kind of almost build uh, my little internal ETF, you know, so I, I get – look through the majors, try to find a good major that I think is, you know, cheaper and, and, you know, it fits our, fits our specs. Then I try to find a mid cap and then I try to find in smaller percentages, some really convex, um, uh, you know, more, more, more home run type shots. And, um, so, you know, the minute, if you're looking in this world as it is today and you're looking at commodities, I think there's a lot of value there, but if you're willing to look in other places that are considered fairly risky geopolitically, there's unbelievable value there. And uh, a couple things with Africa oil. So first of all, um, they've got a very good management team. 
that has a big track record of success. And as a matter of fact, they're sort of niche, not sort of, their niche has been to go in and find these uh, assets that were being really held down by the fact, you know, the perception of geopolitical risk and, and, and not just perception, the reality of it. And um, they've, they've had unbelievable success doing this. They've had failures like everybody else has, but um, this is kind of their niche. And they got involved in, um, uh, bought a part of a property uh, off the coast of Nigeria. Um, it's got about $6 lift costs, uh, bringing the oil up. And at, uh, at, let's see, we got involved with them at a, well, I think the market cap was like $850 million, but they had no debt and $100 million in cash on the balance sheet. Mm. And at $70 oil, they are free cash flowing about $325 million. bucks. Uh, at bonkers. Yeah, at $90 oil, I think they're free cash flowing around $700 million. Um, it's, it's intensely, it's, I mean, so we are literally buying them. Now, I mean, oil could fall out of bed, and, and, and that free cash flow, flow number obviously changes. But we were buying them at a discount to cash on hand and one year's free cash flow. Um, they have another property that looks as promising. I mean, it still hasn't developed yet, but they don't owe, they don't owe anything on these things. And then they have a 6% stake in the oil field that was just announced by Total off the coast of Namibia. Um, that they're saying is they think it's one of the biggest, it could be the biggest offshore oil find uh, or, you know, sub-Saharan offshore oil find in history. And they own 6% of that. We are doing the numbers on their ownership and, and the estimated size of that. That Now, again, there, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to get that oil to, to market, right? And, and I'm not saying it's not. Um, but they've got some partners with really big pockets. They're getting bigger pockets by the day. They have zero liabilities. Uh, they've got another natural gas field um, um, in, um, is it Zambia? I'm blanking out right now, that they're actually looking to sell off. Um, but you look at the convexity of it. We were looking at their stake, like I was saying, in the oil field, and we were looking at it and saying, okay, let's, let's, let's use the numbers we've got here and let's estimate $5 oil. Right. So now we weren't saying we think that oil is going to five bucks, but we're just saying, like, look, let's see what we let's let's do a massive discount on what we think that they would generate off this property and then look at it, you know, in their six percent ownership stake. And uh, based on the size of this find at five dollar oil, their their position is worth about a billion dollars. That's crazy. At five dollar oil, at five dollar oil. So so. um uh, they're throwing and they're throwing off a little dividend, like two point seven percent or something like that. They're obviously probably going to buy back a ton of stock. Now, obviously, you have the geopolitical risk, but when I see something that cheap, you know, I'm not going to put ten percent of grandma's money in it. But you know, one and a half to two percent on a home run swing like that because the fundamentals are there, right? The management is there, the execution is there. These guys know what they're doing. Really, you're just hoping that some dictator doesn't come into Nigeria. Now the <laughs> Which could certainly happen, but uh, uh, but Nigeria actually had they've had issues, but they just passed new legislation that was thirty years in the works. Don't ask me how that's possible. That that builds a, a bigger firewall between corporations. They're really trying to attract businesses there, and they have a pretty good track record over the over the you know the the last few you know last ten fifteen twenty years. Um, now, obviously laws don't matter if a dictator comes in there and takes over, right. And just shred, you know, that doesn't matter. That's not going to stop him. 
Um, but just it was one of our it was just one of our convex plays that that I think is just uh, uh, just pretty nuts. Did you get a chance to take a look at it? It sounds like a great idea. That Africa is an interesting investment destination, as you point out. They're doing a lot of work there to make it into a very attractive investment destination. So I think that it's probably Africa's century coming up here. Or it, you know that people have said that in the past, but I think that that's, we're getting closer and closer to that being the case. Convex ideas are the only way to do it. I think in, in that kind of in that kind of space where the downsides, you know, virtually zero, and the upside is is very large. For me personally, it's just it's just hard for me to do stuff like that because I where I have where I have an advantage possibly it's just over stuff that I can sort of estimate out into the future. It sounds like the very conservative assumptions have a huge payoff in that in that position, and I'm certainly regretting you know the the fact that I don't have enough energy exposure or don't have any energy exposure at the moment. It's definitely going to hurt my returns. The thing is though that. For me, it's just I have to sort of decide what kind of investor I am and the, the kind of investor that I have is one who's just super, super conservative all the time on the downside and, and it's, a, it's a personality defect that just makes me... <laughs> I, not in a downturn, it's not, pal. Not in a downturn, it's not. Let's hope, let's hope. Okay, so I hadn't really thought of that. I, you were talking about... but I knew all about the, the preferreds that he did with Oxy. It was a classic Buffett deal. Uh, got a good scalping off that one. I thought he I, did. He just can did he just convert those preferreds to regular equity? I thought he bought another four and a half billion dollar chunk of common. I I I saw that announcement too that he had bought. I just I just haven't followed it that closely because gotcha. I, I I just didn't know it. The sort of the I think the most iconic Buffett deal is that Apple. You know it's. People, I, I've said this a few times that I think it's the greatest trade ever, the greatest investment ever, because Buffett is so well known and Apple is so well known, and he put a third of his capital into Apple. Anybody could have done it to any size, and now I think he's four or five bagged on it in in two or three years. It's just, it's one of the all time great investments. Whenever I say it, somebody always says, "Well, what about the Naspers?" deal where they put they put 20 million dollars into uh i think it became 10 cent or something like that and it's now a 200 billion dollar position yes that's a great position but if you work backwards you've got to think about the fact that that was a south african company and the they risk never sold was so it. much yeah different different trade different trade oh the buffett risk profiles was, are not even comparable right buffett's and buffett's super well known he's doing it in full view of everybody all the time and he's he's pulled this trade off that you know, any any venture capital, any tech investor out there could have done the same thing. And really the thing that makes Buffett such a great investor, it's not those big high-profile deals that he does do. It's all of the other stuff that he could have done and didn't do that all of these other guys have done and now sort of been trapped in because everything's getting blown up. Like to, that That's, that's the, tr- the kind of investor that I'm trying to be. I'm trying to be the guy who's just the one who doesn't make the mistakes more than the one who sort of has the really... The, the giant payoffs that that that's where I'm trying to get to survival above all else. I no, I'm with you, and I talk to our clients. You know, I, I like I said, I'll pick those little spots to get a little good, bit of convex action. But um, you know, I preach it to our people all the time. The only way you lose in this game is if you exit the game. You know, right. and just make sure that doesn't happen. Make sure the worst case scenario is still something you can live with. And nobody wanted to hear this, right, a, a year right. and a half ago. And now you sit there, like I, I sat there and looked at the performance swing, right? 
Nobody was putting out glowing uh, uh, tweets about the quality of your or my research two years ago. <laughs> right? True. But, but, hey, risk management, now go look at the performance, right? We went from being, you know, falling behind to where now you look over the last three years and we've beat ARKK like a drum, you know? <laughs> um, and why? Risk management. Making, it doesn't matter if you, you know, it's like being at the casino. I was up a million last night. Fantastic. You're rich. No, I gave it all back. <laughs> Who cares, right? It, we, it's, do you want to know, a, you want to hear a crazy stat as of today, over the last 10 years, Berkshire is now beating the S&P 500 after trailing quite a bit. And he's had this huge cash drag the whole way through and not held tech. Unbelievable. It is well, really amazing. Well, and what, like the other thing too, go, let's go back and look at the sharp rate. I mean, it's, yeah, go look at the sharp ratio on that. He's outperforming the S&P with a, I mean, what, probably... I don't know, 50% of the vol? Uh, I, I, I don't know, actually, but I, I'm, sure that, I'm sure that's true. That One of the crazy things that I have noticed about the S&P 500, though, is that the volatility of it has sort of drained out remarkably. Like, it has been putting up these really – it's been putting up these hedge fund-type numbers. And I, yeah. And I don't know why. I don't know if that's because it's a little bit goal-seeked. I don't know if there's a little finger on the – you know, passive. possibly it's just flows. Yeah, flows. passive flows. It, it uh, has to doing. be. I, I mean, if you think about, I mean, just because you can all, I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not Mike Green or any of these other guys. I'm not right. trying to even pretend that it's I am. It's Mike Green's thesis, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I, and I love his work, but I mean, you, if like 2019 for me was the perfect example. I, I think if you looked at it, it just, it was like it just went up 35 to 45 basis points a day, right? Just just stare yeah. walking up and you i felt like you could see the transmission you know the the every two weeks the paychecks hit you allocate right. to the 401k you buy the s&p you go buy spy and then you just kind of levitate you know um it it is that passive part of it and the funny thing and i'm glad you brought this up um you know it was a really interesting thing and I, i've got a couple other things i want to get to so i don't get stuck on this but we were and still are investors in camping world and um, mm-hmm. they just had a phenomenal, uh, somewhat transformative 16, 18-month run. Um, and they, they really, in my opinion, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of their capital allocation. As it, what they've been doing is juicing their dividend instead of buying back stock. And, and I actually had a, a small back and forth with their CEO on Twitter just saying, I love everything you guys have done. But when your stock is trading this cheap, you're you're running at a four point eight price to earnings ratio. Um, you're paying yeah, down buy debt. back some stock. Yeah, yeah. Your your stock's paying six and a half percent dividends. They increased the dividend. They tripled the dividend rather than buying back stock. And and it baffled me on this last because I'm sitting there going, guys, if nobody wants your stock with a six and a half percent dividend, eight percent isn't going to push them over right. the edge. You know, I mean, they're not buying it. So instead take that capital and buy back those shares that are paying 6%, right? And, and we were sitting there going, it, it, they had 200 million set aside for a buyback. So they are buying some back, but I was like, don't waste it on the dividend increase. It's not moving the needle. The other thing too, is that it, as great as their performance was, Toby, you, 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 the stock went, it ended up just going right back to where it was before the, before the, uh, the great run. We bought it at a 15 its revenues are up like, geez, since we bought it, like 40%. They've hit records in net cash flows and, and revenue. And now the stock is at where we bought it, at a 4.5 PE. 
Now, I understand why the cyclical investors are saying you sell those types of stocks when they're cheap, right? They're they're anticipating Mm. this is the top of the cycle. I think they're wrong for a variety of different reasons, but they could certainly be right. But my whole thing to management was, look, if you dedicate this all this capital to buying back stock, you're going to buy back 25% of the float and you're going to you, and you're going to you, and it, it's going to jack your earnings up by 40 million dollars next year. I I mean I think that's that's the kind of thing that I do like to see for two reasons. One is that it does it does have that impact on the company but also it just shows management's attitude to doing that stuff. It shows that they understand the how to use undervaluation. I have seen Camping World has been sitting on the edge of my screen. It has been close and and I've looked at it a few times. I haven't actually ever bought it, but I but I I think that you're right if they could get that if they could start cleaning up the uh if they did start doing a little buyback there, a meaningful buyback. Yeah, that would be a that would be a superb stock. What's interesting though, just 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 for experimentation, um when we get when we when we're done here, pull up Camping World, look at the chart. Look at the progress statement. Just you know, just look at the balance or the in, the cash flow statement really quick, the income statement, and then com- and then sit there and go look. You know, look at that whole thing. Look at the chart over the last two years, and then go look at a chart of the Russell two thousand. And what it, it mirrors? It it's a mirror image. Yeah. It's just a mirror image. And and that was another reason why I was like, buy back the stock, right? The people that still own your stock are guys like me. Right, we're not going to sell. You know what I mean? We're fundamental investors. So where's all the selling coming from? It's coming from the indexes. It's all the index, yeah. So, so then I pull up the indexes, and by my math, I think about fifty-five percent of tradable shares on that thing right now are rolling through indexes. The top shareholder is IWM, and they're right around twenty percent. Now remember, and it's twenty percent of the of the of shares outstanding, right? Well, what is it on average? What is it about? I mean, I know it ranges widely, but you know, you look at the total number of shares outstanding and then what typically maybe 20, 25% of those are not free trading, right? They're owned by officers, insiders, things like that. I guess it yeah, depends on the company. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I, that, that, that phenomenon that you're identifying is very real. It's sort of, that's Mike Green's thesis. If any, anything really plays out more on those small and micro because the indexes end up owning so much of them and the that fundamental guys who are small and micro have been so devastated that they don't have the kind of firepower to move those things around. So it, it is sad. It's, it's, there's a lot of passive holding in, in, in the small and micro cap stuff. But that, would, but, but that would support the buyback store even more. 100%. 100%. And, they and, need to get some religion. They need to get, they need to get some capital allocation religion in there to, to, for it to recover. It's probably a prime activist target. Over, over the next few years, we might see a lot of activism in small and micro. Now, what was encouraging to me is Lamonis actually responded to my tweet and said he agreed that they shouldn't. They so we'll see. Um, he but he sounds like he gets it. Well, I mean they have to get it now. They upped their dividend to eight now eight percent since they raised it to six and a half. They were at forty six bucks. They've raised it again to eight, and now they're at thirty one. Right, and so I think he's. I, I think he's realizing that, you know, that's not, at least that's what he said on Twitter. He, he, he said he agreed. So um, a couple other things while I've still got you here. Um, wanted to ask your opinion on this. Again, experience. We had a board meeting for that private company again the other day. And I was talking to the guys about how companies are ordering things from us. And then there was a really unusual deal, especially the bigger companies we're working with. Um, a lot of them were doing licensing fees with, so they just use our technology and pay us a licensing fee. And right. they want to pay the licensing fee 
all up front in one big chunk. And I looked at the guys and I go, why in the heck would they want to do that? And they were explaining to me as the company was explaining to them. Now, this is coming through our guys, so I'm, I, I'm not sure and I'm not an accounting expert. But they were saying that if they do it that way, they can categorize that, that expense as essentially like R&D. And then it actually improves the margin. Well, on paper, it improves the margin on the product rather than paying the license fee per unit sold, right? So if they pay the license fee per per unit sold, then that licensing fee goes directly against the sale. But if they do it this way, they can call it R&D. Are you familiar with that at all? Well, uh, that that capitalize, you know, that's that, that's one of the dark arts of, of the accounting playbook that you can capitalize some expenses and i'm guessing that's what that is they're just capitalizing it if they if they pay it up front yeah so they capitalize if they pay up front as 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 some sort of quasi purchase which then gets uh amortized or or depreciated over time rather than on a on a unit by unit basis paying you which then makes their margins look smaller that's really interesting i it's such a funny game, isn't it? When they make decisions, like it's it's a it's a it's probably an economically less sensible decision, but it improves them on an accounting basis, and that's that's what they care about. G- is G- Gap is just a mess, isn't it? I, I like I I sat there and I heard that and I went, look, I yeah, like you said, it's that accounting wizardry, but but bottom line, that's not accurate. That's just not an accurate statement. I mean, right? I I just don't understand how that's okay. Well, I, I there there is that sort of. There is that, you know, if you're per- it, it probably gets categorized as a per- purchasing uh, intellectual property purchase or, or that, and then rather than yeah, rather than having to attribute it to each unit that they're selling, yeah, it's 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 depreciated or amortized across the across the business, and they can set the the, the number of years that it's amortized by too. It's not uncommon the 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 accounting. The accounting system hasn't really kept up with business and the way that, you know, this is not an uncommon problem for a lot of the bigger companies too. There are two very common problems. One of them is that um, when they, these bigger companies that have done a lot of buybacks, some of them have bought back more capital than they have invested in the business. And so they have negative book value and they clearly they have, you know, real value in the business. So the, the, the book value figure is meaningless. And the other problem that they have is exactly that where previously they had to build a factory or something physical that you then depreciated over time. And now what they're building is intellectual property and it's just a different treatment. And so it sort of flatters their, um, it flatters one part of their financial statements and it, it hurts another part of their financial statements, but they found a way to kind of work their way around it. it, it it'll, it'll send, uh, it'll send accounting geeks cross-eyed. So I, I feel for the average investor having to try and figure this stuff out. Oh man, well, and it, it just I, I yeah, it got my head spinning cuz you're sitting there going, you look at the I mean, you look at these massive conglomerate tech companies like Amazon. I I mean, look, it's not Alibaba, but I mean, I mean that is a titanic effort to go in there and really understand Impossible. how every dollar is moving around that company. I mean, good luck, right? Impossible because even and reasonable people can Two people who are both have the best of intentions can disagree about the treatment of some of this stuff, and there are so many decisions that get made all the way through those financial statements. It's, it, nobody could really unpack them and fully understand what's going on. You have to, at some point, when you're reading the twentieth footnote, 
and I, I've done, I've sort of been through this process where I was used to be incredibly forensic on financial statements and I've become less so because I think you, a little bit, you have to trust management. You have to play the man a little bit in this game. And if you, if you don't trust them to the extent that, uh, you, you know, if you, if you don't trust them so much that you're going through and reading every single footnote, then it's probably the wrong position for you. That, that's sort of the posi- that's, that's where I've got to in this stuff. You trust the management. You don't have to spend as much time on the footnotes. It's, it's funny that, you've, that you're there because you and I have not had this conversation before, and I have come – I have swung much more that way of realizing that we do not have the capability on a forensic level to get in there and right. understand everything. I think you can get a good grasp on the business right. and the way capital flows, um, but, yeah, you got to trust management. Okay, so while I've still got you here, um, I wanted to ask you about something that I did not anticipate. I mean, I figured at some point we'd be able to have this conversation, but targets in this tech wreck. Um, one thing that I've been looking at is – and we've just started nibbling again. It's not a recommendation to anybody else, but PayPal. Um, <laughs> I, I, we, I just didn't think we'd ever get a shot at it at these levels. And, and we're still doing our due diligence. Like I said, we bought a little bit just kind of as a starter nibbling at it um, and, and trying to understand the business on a better level. But, but from where we're at right now, it looks like a pretty dang good business. Have you looked at PayPal at all? And then also any other companies – Again, not recommendations, but any other companies that you think we should be keeping an eye out here that have gotten any babies thrown out with the bathwater? Yeah, I think there are quite a few. I think it's a, I think it's an interesting time coming up. The th- I just have to be a little bit careful because I got a rebalance coming up this weekend, so I, yep. I, I can't be I can't be talking about what's going in or coming out. But, <laughs> but there, I, I have I have looked at quite a few. There, there are quite a few techie names. Like, I tell you, the, the ones that I the ones that I really like are, are, are Google and Apple, and I'm. They, they are not going into the portfolio, so I can kind of talk about them a little bit. But they were right on the edge of my screen. At Apple, I thought uh, – sorry, Google below $2,500, I thought was just about as sure as you could get. I felt the same way about Google sub $2,500 as I did about Berkshire Hathaway a few years ago where, you know, it, they, they get to a point where they're so cheap you just don't have to do that much work on them. Google just didn't quite get down to my level, and it, now it's just run away a little bit. It's had a few – better days over the last two days like we're talking about a few days ago it was it was almost sub 2500 so that's one i think if people are listening to this and this will come out at some future date i don't know what's going to happen between now and it's entirely possible that google has a little rundown and apple too i just think the two kind of incredible businesses that are you know they're safe on a balance sheet basis uh, they're, they're phenomenal businesses that return a huge amount of capital based on what they've got invested in them. And they're, they're around about, like, say, 150 for Apple and 2,500 for Google, below those numbers, are just I think they're just steals. Not, not a recommendation. No, I, well, you're, you're, God bless you, because uh, remember I told you we uh, came into this year, we've, we've been short the NASDAQ uh, in pretty decent size pretty much the entire year. It's our second largest position. But what we've been doing is periodically harvesting the gains off that because it's been a pretty profitable position for us this year. And we're dumping the profits into Google and Apple. I think uh, it's smart. And, 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 and we used a little bit of it to buy some PayPal. Have you taken a look at PayPal at all? I, I haven't seen it come in, but I, I, I'm aware that there are I, – I have heard people talking about it. I, I just haven't – it hasn't sort of got close enough. To, you know, because I'm, I'm, I tend to be at the very, very deep conservative end of it, I'm, I'm, 
I'm further away from the, which is not to say that, which is not to say that it's undervalued at all. It's just that I just haven't had a look at it. Got it. Well, pal, I appreciate you for coming on and humoring me and 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 uh, suffering through all of my questions. It was it was great to catch up and it and it it's really fun to be able to do one of these interviews when things have actually gone our way for once, huh? Yeah, it's been it's a it's an entirely different conversation. It's funny, isn't it? No more no more uh, no more commiserating. Maybe we'll be. We're talking about a few wins for a few years here. Let's hope. Yeah, let's hope. All right, pal. Well, thanks again. And, and for, for everybody that wants to uh, uh, follow Tobias on Twitter, he puts out just great information, and, and I've learned a lot from him. You uh, find him at, at Greenbacked, G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D, correct? That's it. So my, I have a website, acquiresmultiple.com. It just shows all of these sort of names. You can, you can just screen these names, and it shows – cheap and a few of the little quantitative analyses that we do and i've written some books acquirers multiple is the is the most recent one came out in 2017 and the funds are the acquirers fund zig and i've partnered with these roundhill guys for uh for a small and micro fund which is called which is deep mate thank you so much for having me on. i'm always incredibly grateful love chatting to you on this stuff uh, love chatting with a like mind particularly because we have We've been in the foxhole now, and it looks like we're going to be okay. <laughs> we're, we're, I can see the other side now, at least, man. See the well, light at the end of the tunnel. That's right. That's right. It, it, it's, there's brighter days ahead for sure. So as always, Toby, thank you so much for coming on. And I encourage you all to, to, to like I said, give him a follow on Twitter. Uh, visit his website. Um, and I, like I've said, he's the only other money manager on here who we actually have his fund in our portfolio. So that kind of tells you what we think about it. Um, so anyway... Have a great weekend. We will be back next week with another great interview. Not telling you who it is yet. You gotta, you just got to tune in. Uh, but anyway, have a great weekend. We'll be back next week. See you soon. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.